0: Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
2: Welcome to the Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, where we serve a weekly menu of industry commentary based on what the market has to offer. I'm Andrew Friedman from TokeLand.com.
3: I'm Jimmy Bradley from the Red Cat.
2: You are probably listening to this show sometime in the late winter or early spring of 2017. We're not quite sure when it will air, but we had an opportunity to pre-record an episode with someone we've wanted to have on the show, I guess probably Jimmy, since we created the show.
3: Day one, inspiration.
2: And that guest is the legendary chef Jonathan Waxman. Jonathan, thanks for being here today.
4: Uh, Thank you, Andrew. You know, legend means you're probably dead, by the way,
3: just so you know.
2: Living Uh, legend, Jonathan (laughs) Waxman.
3: Dear friend, culinary icon, and cantankerous gentleman.
2: I'm not going to say celebrity chef. We've got to do better than that. That would just be sad
3: well you know, there, is, there is
4: there is something to be said so, for for celebrity um, um, but the, in, the, in the days of Trump it's let's you know let's change that that word yeah. shall we so uh,
2: i'm sure every you know 95% of our listeners know who jonathan is but jonathan of course is with barbudo restaurant in new york uh, is is and has been involved with some other projects around the country places like nashville atlanta san francisco Uh, In the past, of course, um, was the chef at Michael's in Santa Monica during a very important time that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, Worked at Chez Panisse prior to that. And then, um, among other pre-Barbudo projects, was another very important restaurant, uh, uh, the original Jams, which opened in 1984 in New York City. And uh, we'll talk about all that in a little bit. Uh, But, you know, Jonathan, what we'd really love to sense... um, you know, this is a national show, although we're here in in Brooklyn. Um, you know, it seems Jimmy and I were talking about uh, you have a very well-defined style. Uh, it, it seems uh, to have been... Um, Solidified for a long time. You know, when I think about your food, you're one of a handful of chefs, and I hope you take this as a compliment because I mean it that way. You know, you remind it reminds me a little bit of the way uh, Clint Eastwood makes movies. You know, it's very it's very self assured. It's been pretty well set for a long time. It still works really well. And he still makes movies that come in and, you know, are number one in the box office, right? So I'm leaving Clint's politics aside. I'm talking about, you know, what's on the screen. How, what, the question that we wanted to start with you was, when you have operated in these different, you know, Atlanta, New York, San, these, San Francisco, these are very different places. London. Uh, uh, yeah, how... How or how not have you altered what you do in these different localities?
4: Well, thanks to the high praise with Clint Eastwood, um <laughs> You know, I, I don't know if I could ever live up to that, but thank you, Andrew. Um, you know, I think the most difficult thing um, is cultural. Um, I think that it. I have, obviously, a very predetermined idea about how to cook, right? So you go to a, another place... Um, like London, for instance, and you have your vision of what you want to make, then you go to the market and look at what they have. And even if it's the same chicken that you that you want to serve, you realize it's totally different. It's raised differently. It looks different. It um, doesn't cook the same way. And I think that's the, the hardest part right there, are the ingredient differences. The second part is, you know, your staff. Your staff is entirely um, not the people that you're used to. You know, when, when in New York, there's a certain type of individual that comes to work in a restaurant. Um, I'm not defining them specifically, but there's a certain sensibility and a certain communication that happens in New York that is t- pretty definable.
2: You're talking about a certain culture of the kitchen in New York City.
4: Exactly. But it's not just the kitchen. It's the whole restaurant. You know, it's how everybody talks to each other. Um, I think that uh, it's that undefinable sort of, you know, uh, mutual trust. I think of individuals in the restaurant, whether it's a waiter or front of the house, or you know, a sommelier or uh, a line cook or a dishwasher. There's a certain sensibility there. So it reminds me of you know why um, Brazil is like a, this hom- homogeneous uh, entity. Everybody listens to the same music. It's sort the same culture. Some people are rich, some people are poor, but it's the same culture, and that's the way it is in New York. Everybody has a sort of a similar sensibility about how a restaurant works, and whether you work, it doesn't matter about the genre of the restaurant. It really is the type of, you know, that there, there's a there's a New York style. So you take that New York style and you and you throw it into San Francisco, and and people look at you cross-eyed. Because that's not how we operate in San Francisco. We do things differently.
2: Can you give a, just a small example of the kind of thing you're talking about? Well,
4: I think you know that uh, in San Francisco, for instance, you know, the, the minimum wage is, is, is it's, it's going to be $15, I think, in July, an hour. And I'm a huge fan of livable wage. I think it's super important. If somebody makes $10 an hour and, and make, you know, grosses $400 a week, you can't live in San Francisco. You just can't do it. It's impossible. You know, if you have a family, forget about it. So uh, I understand the whole thing. But I think because of the wage thing and people's aspirations, there's, there's a different, sense of, there's different sensibility, a different philosophy, a different um, kind of focus on what a, what a restaurant is and can be. Um, in New York, there's something, there's a certain swagger in New York that I think it's unlike any place in the world. And, um, and I'm not saying it's an egotistical swagger. It's a certain sort of self-assuredness that happens in New York. If you go to San Francisco, it's a different swagger. It's a different sort of sensibility. And um, it's hard to, you know, at the beginning to kind of understand it. You've got you to get in there and, and talk to people and, and, and suss it out and try to figure out. Listen, I worked in, in Berkeley in the 70s, and it's a much different place than, than it is now. Um, and I think, it's, to me, it's great. The difference, but it's also daunting because you really have to adjust your sights. You can't go in and you can't be cookie cutter. You have to be, you have to be very sensitive to how people operate, um, and I think that's like a, like for instance Nashville. Uh, when I first went to Nashville about three years ago and we opened Adele's, um, I didn't know what to expect. Number one, um, but there was such a growth spurge in 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 um, in Nashville just i mean they they went from 250,000 people in 1985 to 1.8 million people today just that growth factor creates a sort of strange restaurant market you know you don't have chefs walking around with their resumes asking for jobs you don't have waiters that are ready to go waiting on tables you, know, you have to create those positions you have to you have to nurture them you have to educate people to get to that thing and that's the that's a great thing about about nashville that you know people are eager to learn but you can't expect it to be new york if you do you're just going to die
2: so all these things that you're describing are uh i guess those would influence how you get it done right so in terms of what you what you cook right it seems like you don't really try... Like, you don't try to second-guess yourself when you go into a new city. You, you kind of do what you do. You might be influenced by the product. Uh, you might be influenced by uh, the staff, but you don't try to sort of... Um, Tinker with what you would naturally do to try to fit some preconceived notion of what Nashville wants or what another city.
4: Well, Andrew, I'm just too old to change my place. <laughs> let's just let's just face that. Uh, secondarily, you know, I think that um, when you go to a place, I hope it, that
2: didn't, I didn't mean that in a critical way. By the
4: way, no, 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 no. I think it, I, I'm not not taken in, in, in that way whatsoever. I think you know, number one, when you go to when I went first to Nashville, I ate a lot of different restaurants and see looked at what other people were doing and see what they were serving and what people were eating. And that's, that's a way of doing your due diligence. Then you talk to the chefs and you get an idea about who the good purveyors are. And you go try to find the farmers and, and do all that stuff. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that um, my food is so damn simple that it's hard. Yeah. It's very difficult. That That's, that's really the difficult thing. Uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier about butter. You know, butter sounds like well, you just buy butter and you're done. Well, not for me. Like salt, I'm so weird about salt. It's my chefs look at me like I'm, I'm with cross-eyed half the times because I don't like the salt I'm using. So I look at it because salt to me is so important. Well, that's kind of weird. You know, that's kind of personicity. And you know, maybe it's you know maybe people say well, it's salt, salt, and that's it. Um, I remember when I served my grandmother. Uh, from Queens, when I, when I was in uh, Michael's, and I served her this beautiful John Dory dish with, with all the, what I thought was a wonderful sauce and a great little side vegetable. I can't remember what it is. This was nineteen eighty, and I went to tell her, like, said, Grandma, how'd you like the fish?" She goes, "Fish is fish," you yeah. know. <laughs> and I think there is a certain mentality about that, you know, like if you service, but you buy a New York steak and you grill it and you and you serve it. Well, for me, that's the. I think when I was at Chez one thing that Alice really drove into my head was you really have to taste things. And you have to understand what things taste like, and no two pieces of meat, no two vegetables, no two two olive oils taste the same.
2: When she said "think," when you say "things," you're talking about the individual, the building blocks, the ingredients.
4: The ingredients that you know that you know one artichoke does not resemble another one. Everything's different, and I think that's the hardest part about being a chef: um, looking at ingredients and then sourcing them. And sometimes you source them and you get it from the greatest greatest people in the world and it's disappointing yeah it's it's not what you expected something happened along the way they might have got too cold they might have got a little bit of frostbite something happened along the way and as a chef you've got to be able to say and alice is great about this she goes punt find something different yeah serve somebody you don't have to serve that dish the artichokes weren't great find something else you know and i think um, when you go to these different markets, if you have preconceived ideas about what you want to serve and, and you sort of have, you know, the, you know, the Jonathan Waxman lexicon of, you know, what I want to serve, well, you have to be malleable. You have to you have to be able to kind of go in and say, you know what? No, I
3: ain't going to work. Right. So before that, you know, um, speaking about your style continually, um, you come up in a, in a time when more is more and the classics are the classics and you know it was more about consistency than originality and um, people didn't mess with the classics you perfected them and you served them proudly and so on so you know you you just said your style is so simple how where's the switch when do you flick the switch when do you realize that you know that the the path that you're studying isn't going to be the path that you choose to take
4: you know i think that's the hardest thing jimmy i think that you know me that I can I can switch on a dime, you know. If I if I don't like the way it's going, I'll just I'll I'll, I'll take a right hand turn when no one's looking.
3: You reserve and, to uh, <laughs> you reserve the right to change your
4: mind at any not, time for you, any reason. And you you better have your seatbelt on because you know that I'm going to make that turn. Yes, and, firsthand. You know, and I think that um, I don't waste time in that respect. And maybe it is a little bit like Clint Eastwood, you know, like sticking to your guns, and all of a sudden, like you know what. Um, that actor is not working out. I'm going to get someone else to do the job, and I think that um, sometimes you have to be—you have to be sort of honest with yourself that when things aren't going well, that you have to make a change.
2: I mean, this is the piece that you can only really get through. Like you talk about Alice's influence on you. This is kind of the thing that you're only going to really get through time in a kitchen, right? Having people. Uh, uh, You know, this is that kind of, for me, this very romanticized aspect of being a chef, right? These are the things that are, you're not going to get this in cooking school, right? This is what you get being taught, mentored in kitchens by people who are taking time to convey enough to you that at some point you have the confidence, right, to know those artichokes aren't good enough or to know this just doesn't feel right. Today. Right? I mean that's well, I think that's kind of listen, the I, that's
4: a, kind of the Andrew, I was very lucky. I, I got to go to Lovrain in Paris in the seventies. Yep. And it was a magical time. It was magical. It was the time when, you know, all the French chefs were, you know, like Roger Ferger and, and Michel Girard and and all these people were the they were the vanguard. They were the they were the they were the young Turks at that point. And so they were celebrating ingredients in a much different and less um, static way. They they took a scaffier and kind of instead of throwing the book away, they tried to re, to remake things in a lighter, more modern style at that point. Um, but also it was the respect for ingredients. I remember that you know that um, you know it wasn't just okay. Well, you went to the same butter producer all the time, the same guy that you got your carrots from, the same. You 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 went and looked around at different people that grew carrots or different people that are raised beef or different people that are raised Chickens and, and you looked around and you, and you really became very discerning and then you started looking at different techniques and about you know how how to t- change the classics to your own style and I remember one going to the Trois Gros restaurant and I was blown away by not only the simplicity of it but the intensity of the ingredients that everything had flavor. Everything was delicious everything was cooked perfectly. Things look great on the plate. And I said, wow, that's that's amazing to me. And then I went to Freddy Giardet. And Giardet was the first person that sort of took me to another planet.
2: What was it about Giardet? A lot of people talk about him in a, it, it, almost in the way you just did. You know, like there were all the Nouvelle Cuisine sort of honchos, right? And then they'll go, there's a pause, and then and Freddie Giardet. And it just, there's this... Almost transcendence the way people talk about him. Well,
4: I was in school, and, and um, Gregory Usher, who's long gone now, um, was a real student of French cuisine. And he said, "I heard about this guy in Switzerland," and I, you know, I hadn't been to Switzerland before. I didn't know what he was talking about. And so all of a sudden, it was it was the mystery guy. You know, is that it was the you know is that uh, the guru you wanted to find out about? You wanted you want to go on that that journey to. To find out, make the person. pilgrimage. Make the pilgrimage, yeah. or, or find out what, and find out what was up. Was it was it was it nonsensical? Was it was it real? And so when I finally went there, and um, and I ate there, and it was very different. Number one, it's very Swiss. So everything everything is clean, precise, perfect. You know, the rooms clean. The waiters were immaculate. Um, when I ate there with Alice Waters, she goes, "It's like a little museum of French." Cuisine. Mm-hmm. I love that description of it. Um, and remember, I was the first time I ate there. The gross were eating at another table. You know, it was, was kind of crazy. But when I remember when I ate one of the dishes, and it was just a simple seared foie gras with a, a gastric sauce made with a little bit of vinegar and the emulsified juices of the of the foie gras fat, and um, and a little bit of greens, and that was it. And I ate this dish, and it was perfectly cooked on a perfectly warm plate. In the foie gras itself was immaculate. Everything, everything about the dish, made you want to have another one. Give me another one right away, you know. And then you went the progression of all the dishes. And when I got through eating that first meal, and I go, "This is magical. This is why I want to be a cook. This is my aspiration. This is where I want to be. I want to be able to cook in this, not in this style so much, but with this." It's kind of integrity and tradition, but also with it was day's style. It was his. It was his interpretation of that kind of food.
2: So that was one of these moments where you see. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a cliched word, right? But when people talk about inspiration, there was you saw um, the world broadened a little bit, right? You saw a path maybe that you didn't see. It just it kind of flipped a switch in you. And activated right? but It was more than act- a
4: switch. It was kind of like a, a full body vibration. Yeah. You know, it was <laughs> like, a, you know, it was if people would say transcendental. It really was. It was like dropping acid. It was like something crazy happened. You know, listen, I was a musician for a long time. And, I, and when I went to see someone who I'd never seen before and, and I heard them play like Rassan Roland Kirk, I saw Rassan Roland Kirk and I just couldn't believe it. This is a guy. He was playing three instruments at once, making them all work. And laughing, and he was blind. I mean, like, right. the, world, the, right. world, the world changes world you. For don't you don't see the world
2: the same way Yeah, after you, that. the world
4: changes. Yeah. You, you, you can't not be affected by that. Yeah. And that's what happened when I went to Jareday, and um, I went back many times, and, you know, he would let me in the kitchen sometimes, let me hang out, and um, and I remember the, the one meal that was not Jareday-like, because I'd eaten there a couple times, and he said, you know what, tonight you're not eating my food. You're going eat the way I want to eat. And I said, what do you mean? He says, don't worry about it. And this is the true, true, true what we ate. He had this champagne, double champagne wine bucket filled with ice all the way top. And there were 12 perfect oysters from Brittany, little bellons, like perfect, like perfect. And then we had this little soup. And it was like a traditional Swiss soup of just vegetables and a little, like, little cream broth. And then it was a leg of, of goat. Roasted in the oven with a gratin of potatoes. And that was it, a little jus on top. I mean, to pull that off and make it perfect yeah. was extraordinary.
2: Now, is this something he just did for you, or was this he something did he it. did? He just did it for me. Yeah. Because you do hear these stories sometimes about certain uh, chefs, you know, back in the day who operated in a certain mode. But then, you know, for certain customers who they knew could appreciate it, you know, they'd have... Food More along the lines of, you know, what you're talking about, know, the Grand Mare cuisine or whatever you want to call it. They had a little bit of that sort of for special guests.
4: Yeah, I think, too, that he he trusted me by then as a customer and as, yeah. as, as, as a cook. To He was able to show me what his inner soul was a little bit. Mm-hmm. What he would sit down with his family and eat. Yeah. And also was like, you know, was this perfect, you know, leg of goat that only existed in that season. And it wasn't. It was. He wasn't tour de force kind of things. It was. he was a a precisional type of thing that came really from his heart yeah. and his stomach. Yeah, that's what he he wanted. I could tell he wanted to sit down at the table and have a glass of wine with us. Um, and I think that was really kind of pivotal for, for me.
2: Great. Um, you you're sort of known um, for a long time as. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, you, you play the uh, mentor role to a lot of people. Um, you know, uh, this, is not, this is information that's been out there. It may not be that well known. I mean, you've connected a lot of people up with opportunities. Um, you put Thomas Keller onto the French laundry space uh, in Yountville when you've, that restaurant was for sale, when Thomas was down in Los Angeles. Um, you connected Alfred Portali up with a job at a then-failing restaurant called the Gotham Bar and Grill which was about to be sold, uh, where does that come from for you? Where does that sort of instinct to uh, be a connector, to to be a mentor? I mean, you came into this industry at a time. I mean, that's sort of maybe, again, that's maybe a bit of a cliche now to talk in these terms. But you came into this industry at a time when this industry for Americans was being created in this country. Um, So how did you – what made you want to be that person to people and how did that – become part of uh, just who you are
4: well I think it's a Jewish thing
2: that's so funny because I privately believe that but I would not have said it out loud
4: and I think you know it is a Jewish culture <laughs> thing where you just you do everything you can in an altruistic fashion that's just important okay you know that you help people out regardless of you know how you might you might not even like that person but that person is in need and you know that um, whatever it it but it's it's much more than that. I think um, you know. Listen, I love my business, but when I first got back from France and I started cooking at Domaine Chandon, and I realized that um, there weren't a lot of people like me. And it's sort of like the whole Johnny Appleseed thing, where you have to start planting planting seeds everywhere. I realized that you know that I had to really help create more cooks. More restaurant managers More sommeliers I had to help with that Help with that production of people Because we're not I, I felt Really felt that the industry Was going to grow exponentially Which it has I didn't know why I was going to do that But I, I, I had a strong feeling That it would I thought people, that people Would really want to You know Be that way And You know I think At the end of the day um, I love seeing People connected like uh, Jimmy Bradley told me this funny story when he came to apply for a job for me. And he, he, I said, Jimmy, what are you up to? And he goes, well, I have this opportunity to go work at, at, in Alba, Italy. Uh, for, for It's a family thing where you know, I can go work at the, the uh, you know, Pia Cesare Winery. And, and Pia Buffa my, uh, my cousin, offered me a position. So I would go there and hang out. I said, you want it? you're considering a job working for me or going to Italy? Are you stupid? And, you know, and I tried to push it. I tried to, I, I tried to push him to go to Italy, and and I felt because that's
3: something I would have wanted. I would have wanted that experience. It was a very polite way of not being hired. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. But I was, left the building without a
4: job. But you know, in it, 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 truth, be told, you know, when Thomas came up to I had a restaurant table twenty nine in Napa at that time. And he said, Jonathan, I really have this vision of a Raleigh and Chateau-style restaurant. And what that really means is like, you know, the old-fashioned one where, you know, by the side of the river you'd have this place where, you know, it was a romantic inn with some rooms. And, you know, in the summertime you'd have a patio, in the wintertime you'd you'd light the fire and you have, you know, guests sit sit around the fire and you would cook. And
2: that 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 restaurant might be the only reason that non-residents were coming to that town.
4: Right, and you know, it was it was a place that was worth the detour. Basically, right. that's what they say the Michelin Guide. And um, I looked at him. I said, "Well, I I I think I know the right spot for you. Um, let's go." So I he, I hopped in my Alfa Romeo with him, drove him up to the French Laundry, and we knocked on the door. And and, and uh, I think Sally Schmidt was there that day. I don't. I actually don't remember the details. And you know, you could just see Thomas just fell in love. He just says, this is me. This is exactly what I'm looking for. You know, the romantic 1890s or 1880s, you know, stone building on the side of the road in this quaint little town in Napa. I remember it was like a spring day and the sun was coming out and, you know, there was mustard in the field and you could just see that he was walking on air. I said, there is one problem with this place. He goes, tell me. I said, it's $1.5 million. And at that time in nineteen ninety one, ninety two, was a lot of it was a lot of money. Yeah. And he looked at me, he goes, I'm gonna make it happen. And he did. Yeah. I took mean, it, it took it, him a long it, it took, time. It took him a long time yeah. and you know, but he, he you know, if you know Thomas well, you know that he's not gonna take no for an answer and he's gonna he's gonna get it done. And he got it done and look look what's happened, you know. He did get Laura Cunningham in the deal. I sort of pass it on to him, Um, and uh, uh, his uh, Mater D is still there. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, But I I love seeing that connectivity. I think, you know, that uh, you know how the the industry grows because we're all connected. Right. You know, Jim and I laugh us sometimes when we say, you know, what connects cooks really is that we all speak cooking. That's our language. You know, if if the worst the worst thing happened, all my restaurants closed, and I went bankrupt, and and my wife kicked me out of the house, and my kids you know turned their back on me. I would take my little knife roll and go to the Maldive Islands and and
3: and and, and cook. Yeah, <laughs> you know? like we were we were recently in Italy, and when we arrived back, I forget where we were, but a couple of people were saying, you know, how was it? What do you do? What's this? How do you do that? La la la. And you know, one of the the things that just kept coming back is. um well, what we do is when we do, you know, trips like this is we eat, we drink, and we talk about eating and drinking. <laughs> our, right. Some of our three favorite things to do. So yeah. Jonathan says, you know, that's that's talking cook, but you know, it's uh
2: Well it's also sharing is, stories. It, is it not? I mean it's also that bond is you guys are kind of in your own I mean cooks and chefs, you're in your own You're on your own schedule. You're on a different schedule from most of most people. You're you're uh, in a different work environment than most people. Um, It really is this sort of parallel universe that exists, you know, right in our midst. We can all see it. You go to a restaurant, especially with all the open kitchens that exist today. But there, it's the life, is it not? Like it, it is the rhythm of that life. I think um, that is that sort of you guys. you know, I think cooks and chefs understand each other in a way that it's almost impossible to if you haven't
4: done. There, that. There's Andrew. I think what it, what it comes down to is trust. And, and going back to this whole, like when I was a lover Red and, and going, having all these great, you know, French instructors, and they were amazing. Um, and you know, when you get out in the real world, the fantasy part when I was at school stayed with me. In other words, the the romance, the the history of food. That I learned in school, that was as important as learning how to cook. And I think when you take the you know the the history of what food is and and how it's evolved and and now we're we're at a, a much, more rapid and furious pace. The world has shrunk culinary wise. I mean, it's it's really become a dense a dense, uh, society of food. Um, I think that um, I always hark back to, you know you know what was it like in the 30s what was it like in the 50s you know what you know what might have been like i love like watching Downton Abbey and looking at the kitchen seats i yeah. love that yeah. I, and i love the people that are taking the time in these in these you know movies these days to show what cooking was like in a different era mm-hmm. and how it's evolved or not evolved you know how it's maybe sort of we've taken sort of shortcuts and, and we should think about that and maybe we we shouldn't do the shortcuts you know back in the day when they, they would churn butter you know right you know that's that's a crazy notion right yeah okay what's your job day? go churn that churn that butter and the, and the cooks they would look at you
3: like are you out of your mind every now and then somebody pulls it off you know you got a guy like Kinch. like you were talking about salt you know he sends a fisherman out with a bucket and gets some deep sea water and Boils it up and turns it into salt. He takes one of his cooks and says, you know, pound, pound the cream until it turns into butter.
2: Well, it was funny. I, just, I was just in uh, your old stomping grounds. I was in San Francisco, uh, Inauguration Day weekend, and uh, we went to uh, – I'd never done it before. It's actually – I highly recommend this to anyone listening, the Alcatraz – tour is amazing and we were listening to the audio tour and one of the few um violent eruptions that happened at alcatraz that wasn't an escape attempt was they were serving the same pasta every day spaghetti and one day they served it just one time too many and they all the inmates went nuts in the dining uh, room that's staff meal (laughs) at certain restaurants food food is important Um, we uh, are talking with Chef Jonathan Waxman. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to introduce a new recurring segment on the front burner, Anatomy of a Dish, when the front burner with Jimmy and Andrew comes right back.
0: Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious, fresh cheese curds, or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cruz Cherchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, Eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer.
2: Welcome back to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. We've been talking with Chef Jonathan Waxman. Uh, So, Jonathan, we have uh, a segment we've had in mind for a while. We thought there would be no better chef and dish to break it in with than you. Uh, It's called Anatomy of a Dish. And we want to talk a little bit about uh, a particular dish. I mean, people would call it a signature dish. I guess, um, and, and how maybe it happened and how it's changed over the years. And obviously, uh, you are very closely, I think you said to me, you know, there's going to be a picture of, on your headstone of, uh, of a chicken. You have been doing a chicken in various forms uh, since you were at Michael's Restaurant, uh, which you arrived at in 1979. Um, you were there for the opening, obviously. You were the chef there. Um, but what can you tell us? How did this dish come to be, and 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 how's it morphed over the years into what you serve? You know, in more than one place now, including here in Barbudo in New York City.
4: You know, I always think about you know the musician that has to play you know that song that was his biggest hit, or right. This is your hit, piano man. You know, and and everybody wants to have it, and and, and you know you i never get sick of it, to be honest with you, but I do get a little bit uh, weary from thinking about how many chickens lost their lives in, in, in my in my in my in for my cuisine. Um, you know, listen, this is the weirdest thing. You know, my grandparents started uh, a chicken farm in outside of Petaluma in uh, Cotati, California, Sonoma, in the late '40s, early '50s, and you know every. Weekend, I would my my parents would drag me up to the farm. And um, I remember this is this is a true story. My grandmother would have a bandana around her head, and she'd be polishing eggs to send to the market. I said, "Wow, this is a strange, strange sort of affair." And anyway, so I, I was surrounded by chickens uh, from an early age. By the way, my grandmother was the worst cook, and 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 she. I don't know what she did to those chickens. She obviously hated them, and, and she, she brought her hate, And that her, in her the hay. kitchen. Yeah, exactly. So when I went to Michael's, Michael was influenced by another chef, Jean Bertrand, who had a restaurant um, uh, called L'Emitage on La Cienega. And he had a chicken and French fries, sort of a bistro-style dish. And Jean was an amazing guy, and he was sort of the he was a direct connection to the, you know Michel Gerard and those people in France and that were that I had you know and been admiring when I was in France and um, so this is sort of, sort of his take on a sort of a something a, a classic bistro dish but he he in the in the California style he I think he roasted it I can not remember and he served it with sort of a, a matchstick style potatoes so Michael goes look we're going we're going to sort of do a riff on that and do the, sort of the same thing so we got these nice chickens I can not remember where they're from And uh, we boned them out completely. And then because the center of Michael's cuisine became the grill, I don't know how that really evolved into that. I cooked everything on the grill in those days. Uh, We started grilling the chickens and serving them with these frozen French fries and a tarragon butter, and watercress, and and so I must have served a ton of those when I was at Michael's. So when I opened up Jan's in 84, I decided, well, you know, people like that dish, so I'll I'll do my own version of it. And Larry Forgione had um, given $10,000 to this guy to uh, raise chickens in upstate New York, and and Paul Kaiser, and Larry goes, the chickens are ready now. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, I'll send you some. And they were like the most magnificent birds you've ever seen, and um, they cost fifteen bucks back then, so you imagine the, you know, how, how much love went into these birds, and they they were huge. They would come in, they had amazing subcutaneous fat in. Anyway, so I started cooking them. If I bone them out the same way I did at Michael's, but I started cooking them on a charcoal grill, real fire. And I started making real French fries, and the French fry recipe that I came up with was so convoluted and silly, my, my chefs hated me. And here's the other weird thing. I was so pedantic about things. I didn't want a classic deep fryer. I did a, a rondo on top of the stove because I wanted everybody to, to understand... How to do French fries from scratch? Yeah, I can speak to that yeah. point. Um, <laughs> now, when you say on top of the
2: stove, you mean you, you put the rondo on the
1: grill?
4: No, on the, sto- on on the, the stove. On the stove on the range. Yeah, yeah on the range, and you know, it was just my way of just being, you know, kind of a dick. Um, but it, it, but the result was um, was pretty magnificent, and people seemed to really enjoy it. The chickens were amazing, and I remember this funny story when I, right before the restaurant was opening. Um, Jim from the Stanford Court Hotel and uh, Danny Kay came in for a pre-opening luncheon. And I said to Danny, who was a friend of mine, I said, Danny, you know, these chickens are so damn expensive. I want to charge 23 bucks for them. And that time was. That was out. scandalous. Was I scandalous. mean, people
2: it's still crazy. talk about how expensive that and,
4: dish was. And um, he goes, Jonathan, rents are high in New York. Fuck them. But not also you know? Also, and, and, you know <laughs> and I'll tell you, Dan, Danny Kaye gave me the confidence, honestly, just to move forward. It was it, one of the things. He was the most brilliant person I've ever met, but he's the funniest guy, and he just he just gave me the the, the sensibility that you know what, go with your gut, you know, do do what the right thing. Anyway, so that that became a real sort of a signature dish, so to speak. Um, Gel Green got it wrong. She said it was roasted when it was really grilled. Um, anyway, so roll forward to today's time. And when I opened Barbudo, I um, I wanted to do it differently. And I was, uh, number one, I wanted to be more simplistic. So I took these beautiful birds, actually not from Paul Kaiser anymore, but they're from Lancaster County. And we took these really great birds. And I decided, why am I taking the bones out? And all my all my chef friends go, oh, people never eat chicken on the bone. That's what they do it all the time. That's how you eat at home. Got so it. I decided to serve. So I just cut cut the chicken in half, you know, took out the backbone, and served the chicken. And here's the goofy part of it: it's sort of half grilled and half roasted. Depends on the mood, the moment, the chef. Uh, as long as it comes to the, the most important thing, guys, is that it has to be basted. Basting is everything. And even to this day, some of my chefs don't get the basting part. They sort of half-baste it or they get lazy and they baste, baste it for a second. But basting is everything. And the basting part, you know, creates that when the subcutaneous fat starts boiling underneath the skin. and creates that crispy, beautiful skin. And everybody goes, do you, do you season them beforehand? Do you, uh, do you brine them? I don't do any of that stuff. We just salt and pepper them. Right. And put them on the grill and then the oven and well here's another important part of it it, it has to be they have to rest, and also it 's the size of the chicken you know gone through so many permutations of what how big the bird should be, and it has to be about three point seven five pounds right that's kind of that's kind of the sweet spot
3: to me you know this is a the, the, the moral of this story is kind of attention to detail, you know, uh, you, you change it however you want to change it. Uh, but really, it goes back to you looking at it and saying this is this is perfect. This is how I want it or not. So I work with Waxman at Brian Park in the early, mid 90s. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm asking him, how do you want me to do this? How do you want me to do that? What's this? What's that? And he's, you know, at, at a certain point, he's like, look, you got the job. I trust you. Just do what you're going to do. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. Then I'm making chickens for lunch one day. And he's like, this is all wrong. You suck. And I was like, come on now. You just said something different. And so he didn't say anything else after that i used to get to work at eight o'clock in the morning he used to come to work at seven o'clock in the morning five o'clock we used to cook you know 180 chickens a day you know so before noon you're into 90 or 100 chickens and he's got 50 60 chickens laid out and the grill lit and he's cooking them and breaking a sweat and he's like this is this is how you cook a chicken and I was like, yeah, I know I make 180 of them a day. And he's like, yeah, but you're not making them like I make them. And I, so I was standing there watching them. And, you know, really, the moral of the story is it was a very busy restaurant. And I was trying to execute on all these levels. And I was rushing the chickens off the grill, you know. Right. And he, So another two minutes. And it was exactly the same way it was supposed to be each and every time. Sure. And you know, it took me and him at seven o'clock in the morning for a week <laughs> for me to like, let it settle in that really, if you just spend an extra two minutes on everything, you won't have to do it different or, you know, do it again.
4: We well, have. Oh, go ahead. I think the moral of that story really, and, and, and Jamie, I appreciate that. That's pretty candid. Um, I think that, um, that timing thing is super important. Um, Andrew, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but, you know, cooks are a little bit like other people that that are performance-oriented. You get into a bubble. You get into your own world, and time sort of stops around you. And nothing else really affects you when you're cooking. And what Jimmy's talking about really is, you know, that I, I needed him to be in my bubble. I needed him to show how I can stop time and how i can create a dish without failure because i took that extra 2 2 minutes or what it was it, i didn't think of it as the minutes per se but what it was that it's take the time to do it stop yourself don't don't rush it don't um, don't compromise ever as soon as you compromise
3: you're done <laughs> Uh, that's great. I heard somebody said something to me last night, and I just immediately thought of you. <clears throat> somebody said, "No one can stop time, but the great ones can figure out how to slow it down."
4: Yeah, I think it's really what it is, and and you know, like like I was, I've been doing a lot of TV shows in over the last few years, and people say, "Well, how can be so relaxed from the the camera?" I said, "Well, the camera doesn't exist for me. Right. Time stops." Well,
2: this is the jazz musician in you, right? I mean, well, you you were well, a trombonist. You actually gigged around, and and
4: uh, I think no? it's part of it, Andrew. But also, I think that you have to be comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. And I'm never more comfortable than I'm in front of the stove. I just did a, a thing in, in Las Vegas for a Spotify um, convention and for the CES, and and I was on stage, and you know, afterwards, the the, the host goes. How can you talk tell jokes and cook at the same time? Right. You know, and I didn't think about that, but it, it you know, you're flowing. You're you're, yeah. in, you're in your own zone. Yeah. You're there there's something happens that you you control your own destiny at that point. And they said, "Well, how how do you get it so you know it's going to be right at the end of the day?" I said, "Well, you have to keep tasting. You have to slow down time and you have to not compromise."
2: Yeah, it's uh You know, this kind of brings the whole conversation full circle, right? Because we were talking about you and having this very well-defined style. You just said comfortable in your skin. I think that dish to me has always been emblematic of that. You know, that is a dish that has survived. I mean, you know, I don't even know how many. Probably need more than two hands to count all the little sub... You know genres and eras and and survived
3: uh, eight presidents.
2: <laughs> you know, but you know, it came up at a time where you were on the kind of the edge of the kind of anything goes in the eighties, and you know, and it's it's you know the molecular era or whatever you want to call that, and you know, and it, it's like share, it's like there, it's still there. I'll take share. I'll take share. I didn't, you know, probably a better example than that, but it's 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 this thing that you know has has just seemed. um um uh, uh, trend proof. It has seemed trend proof, um,
4: but it, but it has evolved. It right. has evolved, and um, you know, and it, the economics are interesting now that I charge less than I did right back in the day. But back in the day, when Larry's chickens of Paul Kaiser were an experiment, they were something that they were you know opening up the world to a different a different mode and then people fall I and mean, i think it's the farmers and the and the people that raise food you know are putting things up on a pedestal now yep and i think that's a lot of people don't get that you know I always think they they always say that was the original sort of farm-to-table chef. So what else is it? You know, well, I know a lot of guys. I
2: know a lot of guys of your generation who that term and the fact that it's come into vogue in the last few years really irks them because they're like, we were all trying to, we were all doing that. We just didn't put a name. We know we didn't call it that.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I I I I, listen. I abhor like buying things in a market covered in plastic. Yeah, it really bothers me. Yeah, Um, and I think because. For a lot of, on a lot of levels, but I just don't think that, um, food needs to be processed so much. Yeah. And and we we really want to, you know, process things. And, um, I think that, um, you know, the, the people around the country that there's lots of these little restaurants that you find out about, and they've been doing this thing where they have their own gardens, their own, um, ranches. They've been buying stuff for years and they've been cooking stuff from these people and those, that, that's, that's magical.
2: Jonathan, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, we've had uh, been talking with Chef Jonathan Waxman of Barbudo and other restaurants. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you can follow us on@ ChefPodcast on Twitter. You can also follow the front burner with Jimmy and Andrew on Facebook. And I believe that's it for this week, Jimmy. Uh, for the front burner, I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm Jimmy Bradley. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.